I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there, and welcome to the Explaining History podcast. This week, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Battle of the Atlantic during the Second World War. And I want to talk a little bit about how the Battle of the Atlantic fits into a far bigger uh, historical picture, which really stems all the way back to even before the First World War, um, to the Kaiser and the uh, Imperial Naval Bills of Alfred Tirpitz. Britain's main vulnerability had always been on the high seas. Britain in the 19th century had made sure that she had a two-power ratio, that she was able to fight the two next most powerful uh, high seas forces at the same time, that her, uh, her fleet would be big enough. And this was a bone of contention to the Kaiser. He had an obsessive envy of the Royal Navy and an envy of Britain's overseas empire. He was determined to build a high seas fleet which would be able to challenge the Royal Navy at least in its home waters and put pressure on Britain perhaps during wartime and threaten really the the cohesiveness of the empire. The Kaiser's logic or the uh, German Navy's logic was that uh, whilst the um, possibilities of taking on the whole Royal Navy were uh, out of the question. Uh, taking on the high seas uh, home fleet would draw such an amount of uh, energy and concentration of forces away from other parts of the empire that Britain would lose grip on places like India and would almost be forced to choose with controlling sea lanes and colonies and protecting the home islands. Obviously, the high point of this strategy in 1916 is the Battle of Jutland, which is a pyrrhic victory for Germany, really. Germany scores more kills that day than the British do, but the Royal Navy is so much bigger than the German high seas fleet that, comparatively, it can absorb greater losses. It performs far uh, far less effectively that day. Uh, however, it manages to still win in some way because the German high seas fleet is forced to withdraw to port really for the rest of the war. And that's where a blockade 
of Germany starts to bite. From 1916 to 1918, and really all the way into 1919, Britain effectively um, starves Germany through a naval blockade, preventing imports from getting in. And it is this blockade that really forces Germany's hand when it comes to the Treaty of Versailles, the continuance of a, a noose around Germany's neck from the Royal Navy makes it, um, even if the possibility of foreign troops on German soil is out of the question, it makes it almost inconceivable that Germany won't sign the Treaty of Versailles because the country is being starved. And according to Roger Morehouse, uh, the historian who wrote the really, really excellent Berlin at War, um, it accounts in 1919 for nearly a million additional German deaths through hunger and illness. However, the aspect of Germany's war that's very close to being successful in World War I is her submarine war against Britain. In 1915, Erich von Falkenhayn writes his famous Falkenhayn letter to the Kaiser, which makes a number of points. He says, firstly, Russia on the Eastern Front is basically beaten, and you don't need to put an awful lot more effort into attacking them. That war is won. The war in the, on the Western Front is the crucial one. The suggestion that Falkenhayn comes up with is that, firstly, the French must be attacked at Verdun, which is uh, has a profound national and religious significance to the French, and they'll defend it to the last man, thus allowing the German army to bleed the French white, as Falkenhayn puts it. And he says, the British will intervene, however, unrestricted U-boat warfare is the method that will bring Britain to her knees once the French are ready to sue for peace at Verdun, having lost half a million men. The British will be ready to sue for peace after their islands are starved into submission. And it's interesting to note that the Kaiser accepts 50% of the Falkenhayn letter, but it's the unrestricted U-boat warfare that he's most nervous about because it's likely to bring America into the fray. Following the sinking of the Lusitania in 1915, U-boat operations are vastly curtailed back and U-boat commanders have to be exceedingly cautious about what they are following and what they are sinking. By 1917, however, a new spirit of, um, I guess, recklessness inhabits the German high command and there is a sense that uh, the war must be lost, must be won decisively, shortly. And unrestricted U-boat warfare, the sinking of anything sailing to the British Isles, is brought back onto the agenda. The Kaiser in American newspapers has adverts published saying, if you are sailing towards the British Isles, you're sailing to a war zone, you're not safe, don't go there. And if you are there, you know, we will shoot first and ask questions later. This does not have the desired effect on the American public in that it doesn't intimidate them into um, avoiding trade with Britain. It simply angers the uh, American 
newspaper reading public who believe that the high seas are the domain of any American ship and that America is a nation based on trade and if America cannot trade, America is essentially not really America and they are unwilling to be pushed around by an autocratic bully boy. It really does rankle with the kind of the core ideas of American nurse. Finally, the Zimmerman telegram is the uh, trigger that brings America into the war, but unrestricted U-boat warfare has been far more influential, far more um, of a, a fundamental factor in making in deciding for America that uh, the war must be fought. The British during uh, World War One. Uh, adopt a convoy system and they use this reasonably effectively though the losses to German U-boats are staggering through 1917 and into 1918 and when the war begins uh, or on the eve of war from 1937-38 onwards when I, a struggle with Germany is clearly looming the British Admiralty really dust off the plans, dust off the uh, strategies that they had devised during World War One in order to deal with U-boat warfare. So the old convoy system with few innovations or additions or changes is uh, adopted once more. And it, it's striking, in 1939, the lack of any real new thought about anti-submarine warfare, given that submarine warfare came so close to defeating Britain, it seems staggering that uh, a great deal of time and effort and energy wasn't put into creating new anti-submarine innovations. Most of these anti-submarine innovations from 42 to 43 were the the kind of ideas that are made on the hoof uh, as Britain innovated during the war. Hitler himself was, um, again, less interested in the Navy than he was in other branches of the military. Uh, the prime uh, levels of funding always go to the Army and then to the Air Force and then to the Navy. And of the Navy, the U-boat section was always uh, the lowest of uh, the Navy's priorities. That is, of course, until about 1940, when Hitler suddenly starts to take a keen interest in what Admiral Dönitz is able to achieve. Suddenly, the U-boat crews sinking huge amounts of Allied shipping and uh, achieving goals that Hitler himself is staggered by become national heroes. The uh, captains such as Gunter Prien and Otto Kretschmer are lauded as uh, nas national figures and pin-ups, celebrities. Um, their crews are treated to uh, entertainment and they are given uh, rewards, cash bonuses, all sorts in order to really emphasise how important they are. Dönitz believed that a battle in the Atlantic could be won with 300 boats, 300 U-boats, 
But at certain times, the German U-boat presence in the Atlantic was uh, sinking 100,000 tons of shipping a month with half a dozen U-boats. The moment that um, Dönitz's commanders suggested to him that using a wolf pack system would punch far above the weight of the actual resources that Dönitz possessed, he made the wise decision of listening to them. And all of a sudden, shipping losses for the Allies uh, takes a huge, huge, huge rise. The situation, of course, hadn't been helped by the fall of France in 1940, which gives Germany half a dozen or so ideal ports facing the Atlantic where they can sail out um, and harry ships uh, with impunity, places like Lorient and Saint-Nazaire. Now, the irony for the U-boat crews is that in 1941, the time where Hitler really started to wake up to how essential they are in strangling Britain. His thoughts are, of course, drifting towards um, Operation Barbarossa. And whilst he would perhaps have liked to have committed more resources, more money, more um, men to the U-boat crews, his real obsession is with Russia, and it is this um, obsession that forces Hitler to break what he considers to be his golden rule, or at least has been a golden rule of uh, German chiefs of staff for time immemorial, never fight a war on two fronts. The um, war with Britain, Hitler considers to be virtually won. Britain hasn't been defeated, but she's militarily ineffective as far as he's concerned and completely incapable of mounting any serious opposition to Germany. So in Hitler's mind, why not get on with Operation Barbarossa? The mistake that Hitler makes is that, obviously, without a conquered Britain, Britain is a staging post for invasion of the continent. And all that Churchill and Roosevelt, when finally America joins the war, all they need to do is to be able to secure the Atlantic. There is little possibility of um, millions of Americans arriving in Britain via troop transport when the Atlantic is still deeply dangerous to shipping. So energies poured into this vital area um, are stepped up by the British and despite the skill of the German U-boat crews, the uh, reciprocal level of effort and energy um, on the part of uh, Germany isn't there. Hitler is basically distracted by Barbarossa. By 1943, Britain has finally learned the lessons of an incredibly disastrous couple of years, an incredibly bloody couple of years on the high seas. Uh, her escorting tactics are different, her ability to engage U-boats, to hunt them and destroy them, greatly improved. And also Britain is now using longer-range aircraft and far more air power in order to spot and destroy submarines. The um, gap in the mid-Atlantic 
where the um, killing ground for the U-boats is, um, around called the Greenland Air Gap, is finally plugged by the use of uh, Liberator, Liberator bombers. It's really interesting what we can see from all of this, um, and it fits into a wider theory that I've often talked about when talking about Hitler's war versus Britain's war. Hitler's war is initially very successful because um, of the tactics used on the land, Blitzkrieg at sea, things like the, uh, the Wolfpack system. But it's only ever thought, it's only ever designed to be a short war. Hitler has no long-term strategic vision, no long-term uh, global strategy for the kinds of long wars that Britain is used to fighting. The short, decisive war of conquest that will knock enemies out quickly and leave Germany as a world power. That's where Hitler's thinking always is. And he winds up with an enemy who he has on the back foot for at least two and a half years, the British. Um, but who? But part of the British way of thinking about war is that war will be long and that war is something that you have to learn how to fight over several years, perhaps even maybe even a decade. And once you've done that and once you have a system, a sustainable system to continue fighting over a long period of time, then eventually you will wear your enemy down. And is in fact actually a strategy that's remarkably successful. When Britain finally learns how to fight her war at sea, gradually the rates of attrition of U-boat crews uh, creeps up and up and up until Dönitz finally decides indefinitely to suspend operations, thus securing the Atlantic for the Allies. Okay, so if you found today's podcast useful and interesting you might want to have a look at the ebook on www.explaininghistory.com about the anglo-german naval agreement the uh, ebook's called hitler ribbentrop and britain and it's the uh, story really of how the um, third reich first attempts to chip away at the treaty of versailles by coming to a deal with the British over their shipping. Um, it is a real little potted naval history of Anglo-German relations, and it helps to explain an awful lot about the later struggles at sea, the Battle of the Atlantic and all that kind of thing. Also, don't forget to sign up for the newsletter at explaininghistory.com. They'll keep you in the loop with new titles, interesting reads, recommendations, bits of living history that are going on all the time, and bringing to you a kind of a whole community of history readers and modern historians that uh, you might not be aware of. Anyway, that's everything for me today, and I look forward to catching you again on the next Explaining History podcast. Thank you. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.